Hey, Alan Christina here from Vic42. And Vic42 is a community of people that believe in valuing, inspiring, and celebrating humanity. And we'd love for you to join us. And there's two ways you can get behind this project. The first is to subscribe to our newsletter and all of our social channels. And when the features come out, share them so these people get as much sharing as we possibly can give them. The other way is to become a patron. As you may be aware, this isn't free for us to put out and we could really use your support. So if you go to vic42.com and click on the patron page, you'll find lots of different ways that you can support us from just a few dollars a month to becoming one of our dignitaries. There's lots of special perks for becoming part of the community as well. And on that note, I'd love to thank two of our uh, first sponsors, which are Jared Ball. You've been super supportive for this whole thing. Thank you so much. And Sam that owns 2% Jazz. 2% Jazz came in right at the very beginning and have been extremely supportive of this. So please go and drink their coffee. It's amazing. And support them as much as you can because of their love and support for this project. This week, we're gonna be featuring Glenn Parfit. He's been a longtime promoter in Victoria, and we want to tell you more about his dedication to the enjoyment of others. I, mean, uh, I could start with my family history, uh, which is also takes you right into the music, as my uh, three uh, great uncles showed up in 1889 from England with a steamer trunk, two violins, and a cello, and uh, were uh, very uh, instrumental in starting some of Victoria's earliest choirs and orchestras. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, did so. And uh, for all the, all the time that they were alive, my grandfather lived until 1960. He was one of their brothers who came later. And uh, he played uh, violin and sang in a choir and uh, had a heart attack when he was um, about 70 years old on his way home from choir practice. Oh, man. So it's, uh, it's, it's a long, long history of music with my family. Uh, you fast forward to me, and of course, at my generation, we were all expected to grow up and carry a tune and play an instrument. So <clears throat> not only could I only sing flat, uh, I couldn't play violin very well. And um, I was taking uh, violin lessons for a teacher through Oakland's elementary school where I went. And the violin teacher, if he didn't like the way that I was holding my fingers on the neck of the violin, he would come by with his bow and wrap my fingers. So after a few months of uh, getting sore hands coming home from my uh, lessons, I said, I can't do this anymore. So I was hiding my violin in the bushes on the way to school and skipping class till my mother got a phone call from the school going, where's your son? We haven't seen him lately with his violin. And uh, the jig was up at that point, but I just said, I just can't do it. But through all that, I was always a huge, huge music fan. Yeah. Very, very important to, to me uh, growing up. My mother had the AM radio on and I was always listening to country music and and uh, real early rock and roll, but that sort of wasn't her thing, so it was more country than anything. And uh, <clears throat> once I got into school, that would have been in the uh, the 60s, so 67, I was just coming out of grade 7, going into grade 8, and the first real bands I saw were at my uh, junior high school dance at Oak Bay Junior High, and the first band I saw was a band called Blues Union. And uh, I thought this was just fantastic, and then from that point on, anytime there was a band playing, I had an opportunity to see them. I would go and enjoy the music, but not standing in the back and you know trying to run around chasing girls. I was the big tall guy in the front row, like literally in the front of the stage. And a lot of the early guitar players went, "Who's this giant dude? He's staring at us. You're freaking me out, buddy." So, but as it turned out, they found out you know who I really was and what I was about, and the fact that I just you know, loved their music. And about 1967, a friend of mine was in a band. Ken Sherwood was his name. And he played bass, and they had a, um, a manager, but they were looking to get a light show, and they were, came to me and said, geez, would you like to invest some money in our band and stuff? 
So I came and had a look at the band and listened to them. I thought, geez, these guys are pretty good and pretty high and not knowing much about music at that point other than being a fan. And then I said, yeah, I'd be, I'd be interested in looking at that. Well, the manager at the time took great offense to it and said, well, I'll, I'll just buy the light show. And they said, okay, you buy the light show. You can be the light man. We'll make Glenn the manager. So he, he kind of walked into a new career, whether he didn't like it or not. So he's sort of thinking he was going to do everything. But nice fella, but he just sort of <clears throat> wanted to sort of have his hands on every part of it. So I said, that was fine. And then uh, we just started uh, fighting them work. They had a couple of gigs before I got with them and had some member changes, but by the time I got there, the um, the member lineup was pretty much the same and sta stayed that way, excuse me, for a few years. Um, in those days, uh, it was sort of the onslaught of disco. It was just starting to get going and getting hot. And of course, all the venues in town are all turning into um, discos, right? Because they didn't have to pay a band, they didn't have to load in the set, you know, all the stuff that went with it. They just had to make a one-time investment and kind of buy some albums along the way, which was albums, uh, to just kind of have music available all the time and keep current. So it was a tough sled trying to find jobs and stuff, and the guys that did have clubs were knew that they were one of the few live places that were really, really beating me up, right, trying to, you know, well, where else are you going to play if you don't play for me for peanuts? <laughs> and uh, it got to the point where I got quite frustrated, and my, my genes and my family background tell me, if you can't, if you can't buy it, if you can't figure it out, make it. So I started calling up halls and I went out and rented halls and I got liquor permits and I got made posters up and started hanging them all over the place and just doing this whole whole thing of uh, starting being a promoter and actually I was as much a promoter as I was a manager and uh, we started putting on hall dances um, and it got really really popular and popular to the point where I started getting approached by other bands going can you do the same thing for us and before I know it the whole thing just steamrolled and all of a sudden, I'm a booking agency with about a dozen bands, and I'm putting on dances all over town and booking bands all over town. And I'd never done this before. <laughs> I had no formal training. I was all doing it by the hip, but, you know, because my family was so entrenched in Victoria, and I grew up in Victoria, I had a real network that I could work from. No internet in those days, obviously, so it was a lot of word of mouth. But if there was a party and there was fun happening, the word got out pretty quick. And once everybody got the location and knew where to show up, um, it was a lot of fun. I ended up, uh, as I kept going, I got approached by some individual groups going, would you put on an event for me? And I said, well, no, I won't. I'll book the band, I'll promote the event, and you guys get your own permits, you rent the hall, and, um, and I'll, I'll make sure that it's built full of people. And they said, okay, great. One example was a, uh, a club called the Firebird Club. And in those days, the Firebird Club was trying to do fundraisers and stuff so all the guys could cruise around and town and be cool oh, in the cars okay, but yeah, have a group yeah. of them together and um, they said okay so I, I they got the hall they got the liquor permit and I got the word out got my top band in there at that time which was called Telstar which was the first band that uh, I managed and, and worked for and we got it all set up and uh, the bar was all set up and all the uh, guys in the club were all going to volunteer to work the doors and stuff so I said everybody ready and they said yeah I said okay well good luck and I walked out the door and said where are you going and I said you asked me to Put the band in. You asked me to fill the house. You got a full house. You got a band. You got your bar. You got your staff. Good luck. So I took off and came back about an hour later, and the, uh, the just throngs of people all over Quadra Street. Just it was like blocking the street off. There's a car on fire, and I go, what the hell? And I I go into the hall, make my way, and I told the cops, I said, I'm just here to to pick up some equipment. I didn't tell them I had anything to do with it. 
And I went up to the band. I said, what happened? He said, we don't know. We were playing. And all of a sudden, uh, everybody started fighting, and the place went crazy, and the cops showed up. And I went, oh, okay. Did you get paid? They said, oh, yeah. I said, okay, well, let's pack up your gear. Let's go. <laughs> and uh, these poor guys got left with this mess on their hands, which uh, eventually got all, all worked out and stuff. But, uh, but it was just one of those experiences where another thing you learn from going, if you don't have things under control, which I always did, that was an example of what can happen. So I knew I was on the right track having you know door guys and stuff and people working for me so that was a lot of fun and uh, had a lot of good years doing that and then <clears throat> there was a fella who had uh, was running a local nightclub called the back and alien club and he had live bands in there and he was one of the guys that was always grinding me and stuff but he started looking out his door going hey this guy's putting on dances all over town with my clientele and they're packed what's this all about well I guess he used to run an agency so he approached me his name was Ron Wright and uh, his family owned the Oak Bay Marine Group and he said let's uh, you know let's work together so we formed our partnership in 1979 and then from there we uh, just started booking bands and uh, went up uh, before we knew it, we got real busy because of course live music was starting to turn around and come back became a little bit more popular we uh, finally uh, had uh, we had some a whole bunch of bands in our in our sort of camp as it was and he also as an side business had a place called high rollers which was a roller rink on um yates street which is now atlas stereo oh, that building was really? it was it was a roller rink so we would put on dances there in fact quite a lot of times when bands would and at the same time he was running a nightclub and had the roller rink and was my partner so this guy was a, a real real uh, entrepreneur as it were and when the bands would finish at the nightclub, he was running in the basement of the Carlton Plaza Hotel, excuse me, hotel called Oli's. They would finish up at night and he'd go to the bands and go, hey, what do you guys want to do now? You want to go roller skating? So at two o'clock in the morning, all the bands and some of the select staff and, and people that we liked all went up to the roller rink and crack open a few cases of beer and start, uh, start you know, just roller, roller skating around and uh, listening to music and stuff. And, um, this was going fine, except you know, as people got a little more loaded, they uh, they started uh, thinking that they were in a roller derby, and all of a sudden the bands, all of a sudden they're breaking fingers, they're they're breaking arms and elbows. Oh we gosh. get a phone call from Bruce Allen's office in Vancouver, going, "No more roller skating, you're killing our roster because everybody's coming back damaged <laughs> so, from, oh from all this, uh, all these yeah. events." But we used, to, you know, outside of that, we also used the the rink uh, to set up our stage and lighting and. And could put on our own event, so we had our own venue. Get the liquor permit, used our own band, so we sort of did everything oh, in house, and it just kept growing and growing from there. Yeah, and you then, guys uh, had the we opened rink. up. We opened up an agency. Um, the agency that we had, we were working out of uh, uh, we um, a retail out office or retail building downtown on the 500 block of Johnson Street, and we moved into there and opened it up and had uh, rooms where we could have meetings and bands would come in and hang out on the couch and want to be sort of part of the scene and hope that maybe while they were there a gig might get called in and they could pick it up before anybody else. Nice. So we had a real sort of a scene going for quite a while. And um, So what building was that this in? This was a 500 block and there was a halfway down the block. As you're going down on the left hand side there's an alleyway that's blocked off now. It's the one on this, this side of the um, of the alleyway. A five, I can't remember the address, actual address, but um, the, the was the word it was all set up in there and I remember one day being in there working in my office and doing something and all of a sudden I look up and there's a bunch of guys walking in the front door with a funny hats on 
and I look and I go, what the heck is that? And uh, they go into the meeting room, my partner comes up and I look at him and I go, Ronnie, what's what, what's with these guys with the hats? And he goes, uh, don't worry, this is gonna this is gonna make us a bunch of money on it. What is it? And he goes, it's a blues band. I go, oh great, here we go. <laughs> of course, like I, I was, you know, a, a hard rock freak at that point, and all the band, most of the bands I was dealing with were doing, you know, top forty rock and roll of the day, and blues was just right over my head, not realizing that in fact what I was listening to was jacked up blues music when I was listening to Zeppelin. Anyway, I found that out later on. My, my um, partner came out of the meeting with these guys with the funny hats on and said, that's our new act. And I go, well, where are you going to book them, right? And he goes, just wait, you wait and see. So we ended up putting them on the roster and uh, there was places for blues bands as I learned along the way. So we booked them into there. And then they went into the studio and recorded uh, a 45 which came out and uh, was released on their own label and uh, <clears throat> they were um, you know get still getting some mild success and, and some minimal airplay from it at that time and then they went back into the album or back in excuse me back into the studio to record an album and this time they was uh, they went in to do an album and it had uh, Tom Lavin was uh, from the Powder Blues Band was uh, producing it and they recorded in his studio in Vancouver Blue Wave Studio and they came out and they had it all done up and then they went and shopped it and sure enough they didn't get a record deal with RCA. So all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I'm I'm representing a recording act. And I still really kind of get what I'm doing, but I'm just like, well, this is working, go with it. You know, I learn along the way. And uh, sure enough, they, uh, they got popular. We booked them into different venues. We got them opening slots, like in Vancouver, we booked them on a uh, opening act at the Commodore with Muddy Waters and and anywhere we could find opening acts. <coughs> University of Victoria, uh, my partner in another company produced two shows up there, one with uh, Paul Butterfield and Rick Danko from the band, and uh, another show with Sean Phillips that he had, you know, using them to open up in some of those shows. I'm sorry, what was the name <coughs> of this band? The band was called Uncle Wiggly's Hot Shoes oh, Blues I know. Band. Uncle Wiggly's. <laughs> Uncle Wiggly. So there I was at the beginning of all that, and they are still all good friends of mine to this day, wonderful cats, and they've got, you know, they still take the band out, drive, you know, docking the dust off and take it around for a cruise once in a while every few years. And then they park it and then they go in and do other projects and stuff, but just a wonderful, genuine group of guys. Um, like, like a lot of musicians when I was starting, I wasn't getting to the cream of the crop right off the bat. So a lot of these guys, I got a chance to watch them develop as musicians. And that's probably one of the, the best things I, I enjoy today because now I can see them 40 years later still playing and they're so much better, so much smoother, so much more learned than when I first saw them. But at the beginning, what we were able to do were very good. I was recognizing potential. And because I didn't have access to the, uh, the, the mainstream bands that were working the circuit and uh, the main agency, booking agency in town was um, called uh, Prestige Entertainments. It was a drummer, Paul Nassioli, that ran that. And he was doing all the high-end recording acts and booking the Royal and booking the McPherson and doing all that. So I wasn't there yet, but I was getting in at the beginning of all these musicians' careers, a lot of them. And a lot of them got on to be in recording acts to this day, which is kind of neat. Every time I can go see somebody, I think probably one of my greatest stories was being able to work with uh, Paul Horn's son, Robin Horn, and he had a little rock band, uh, bass player uh, Dave Reimer, guitar player Mauro Azera, and the lead singer was Murray McComb. And 
they, they played and I got them a few gigs and stuff and they did okay. They eventually went their own way and of course Robin Ari was gigging with his dad as a drummer because he would you know, accompany him when he was doing uh, his uh, flute uh, sessions wherever. I think he even played with him at the Taj Mahal. But uh, the bass player Dave Reimer went to Vancouver and he ended up playing with the Headpins. He ended up playing with uh, Brian Adams at one point and to this day he uh, still plays but he's in a band with uh, the bass player for Lee Aaron. And if that isn't enough, now he's, he's got his own guitar line that he builds guitars and, and sells them. But I met him when he was a teenager rehearsing in his parents' basement. That's See, awesome. in those days, the, uh, because I was seeing so many young bands, they didn't have gigs. So I, had, I wanted to see him in advance. I didn't always have the ability to showcase him, and I wasn't going to stick my neck out at a paying gig and put him on the opening stage. So I went out and, and uh, would go to rehearsal spaces, people's parents' houses and basements and stuff. The most fun one I got to go to, I got a call by these girls, and they said, we got an all-girl band, and uh, we don't want to know if you want to have a look and do some, you know, representing for us, right? I said, okay, fine. So I go to this house out in Central Saanich, and I walk in, and there's three teenage girls there, and they got all the equipment set up and everything else ready to go, and um, I said, well, can't, you're playing rock and roll, right? They said, well, no, we're sort of a punk band. I said, oh, okay. Well, I, and I immediately lit up, because I, I knew that punk was around, and I knew it was starting to happen. I had sort of a taste of it, but wasn't really immersed in it at that point. So I said, okay, well, fire it up. So these girls got out and played a set for me. Well, at the end of it, I thought, you, you girls are wilder than a bag of wet cats. You are just amazing. You got a lot of energy, and you guys should really be doing something with this. So I thought, well, this is kind of neat and unique. So I'll take this out and test drive it. I'll take a chance. So I went to uh, my band, Telstar, who had a um, rehearsal studio. And they, um, I said, let's do a pub night because it was a fairly large place. You put 50, 60 people in it. So we set up a bar and the band was all set up and we brought the girls in and they played the, the first set and everybody turned around and looked at me and went, what the hell was that? And I said, that's the future. They said, if that's the future, I'm out of the business. Of course, we're all <laughs> laughing and joking about it. But I said, I don't thank the girls very much. And I think I gave them some minimal amount of money for doing it. And uh, <clears throat> then later on, um, oh, by the way, they said, don't ever, don't ever bring another band like that in here ever again. I said, okay, fine. <laughs> so at that point, I was um, getting known as a, this was before I became a, uh, had a partner. And um, I was getting known for um, having events and, and having new bands and stuff. So I got a phone call from the then owner of the uh, Surfside Cabaret. Now, this, this was a down on ba basement of Wharf Street. And this place had had a number of names over the years, but by the time... The 70s were there, it was called the Surfside. So he said, I want you to do some promotions for me. So I said, okay, and I did some promoting of some bands he already had booked and had coming in, but just wasn't good with media or press releases or you know anything else like that. So I helped him out with all that. And then one time he says, well, can you give me an opening act for a show? I said, and I need something from here, but I need something different. Mm -hmm. I said, I got just the thing for you. So I brought these three girls in and, and uh, they opened up for you know top 40 rock band. And it was a Monday night, it was a showcase night, and the girls got up on stage and they laid down their one set and just uh, ran all over the stage, just full of energy and everything else. And they finished up and everybody just stood there. Then <laughs> <laughs> they all again looked at me and go, what the hell was that? <laughs> and then the owner of the club looks at me and goes, come here, takes me into his office and said, you know, I really appreciate all the work you're doing and stuff, but don't ever book that band in there again. <laughs> So that was my beginning of the punk rock scene, and that band, of course, would later go on to become uh, nationally and internationally known as D.D. and the Dish Rags. Oh, later shortened it to Dish Rags because they were originally called D.D. and the Dish Rags after D.D. Ramon. Oh, 
but they shortened it to just the dish rags did album releases did tours all across country it got really popular because they were essentially for all intents and purposes canada's first all-female punk band Hmm. and then i thought oh boy this is something else so i'll go into another couple more punk stories um i got called up by another band going we'd like you to come down and have a look at us we're playing at the fernwood community center and we've just released an album and i said are we just finished recording an album i said okay we're doing an album release party i said okay well i'll come down and have a look at you so i got down in the room and everybody's standing around and everybody's at that point they've every one of them's got a safety pin in either their ear through their nose or in their collars or whatever and torn jeans and everything else and okay this looks like a punk scene or whatever and they had the album covers pasted all over the inside of the um, rec center even up on the they were playing on a stage underneath the basketball court and up in the backboard they would even put the album covers up on there so I said okay that's gonna be interesting so the band fires up and they welcome everybody and thanks for coming to the show and now when when we finish playing the song please don't clap please don't cheer we want everybody to boo and I thought this is gonna be weird so the band gets up and just starts laying down the tunes, and they were full of energy as well, too. It's just wild. Everybody's bopping up and down and banging into each other and having a great time, and I'm thinking, this is really something else. So I, I find out later on that the reason they had the album covers all over the inside of the place is that that was in anticipation of the records being sent to them, which they had not received yet in time for the album release party. Oh, no. So, of course, it was a bit of a debacle that way, but they made the best of it, and it was sort of excuse me, turned into more of a pre-promotion for the release party than the actual release party. And that was the Dayglows. Oh, wow. Yeah. wow. And that was the uh, first time I got to see them. And then after that, I was continued on looking for bands. And I was getting calls, and they go, oh, we're having a house party. Come on and see our band. I'm like, okay. And the wildest one I walked into was a 10-piece band. Now, they could barely fit into one room let alone having a house full of people, but they managed to get all set up in the living room. There was like two or three drummers and four guitar players and two bass players and, you know, a couple of singers and stuff, and it was just chaos. So they started up, and of course, this whole house is just rocking because every room in the house is stuffed with people, and they're all bopping up and down, just bands playing and stuff and going crazy. And I thought, what the heck is this? So, but uh, they were popular, so I said, well, you know, if I come across some gigs or whatever, I'll sure, I'll book you. Yeah, you've obviously got a following. And that was a band called Pink Steel, and they just had their original album just released this last year, and the first run was sold out. <laughs> what? Yeah, and they're having to do a, a re, re, uh, a re, um, reissue of it or, or a, a second pressing of it uh, because the first one was so popular still to this day, and awesome. uh, away they went. So this was sort of in my earliest years. That takes me up to about 1970, 77, 78, and by 1979. Our agency was starting to get known and we were starting to expand. We got a phone call from a fella in Calgary going, I'm, I'm shutting down my booking agency and uh, I'm re- retiring from the business and I didn't know if, and didn't know if you uh, would be interested in buying into it. So my partner and I flew out and we, we had to check this guy out and everything else. We thought, well, you're booking a lot of high-end stuff and a lot of prairie bands at that point and uh, bands from you know uh, Saskatchewan, Alberta, uh, Manitoba and some excuse me, recording actually come out from back east. So he said we would buy it. And the name of the agency, the fellow we bought it from was uh, called, um, oh, his last name was To Catch. But the agency was called Bruce Allen Talent. And I guess it was the Calgary office of Bruce Allen in Vancouver. And so we went, oh, okay. So 
we get going and fire it up, made business cards and everything else, and started dealing with bands and everything else. And all of a sudden, one day, I get a phone call. Who the fuck are you? <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing with my name? And it's Bruce Allen, and he's just ripping me a new one, right? And I haven't even said who I am yet, <laughs> right? And he's just tearing my face off. He says, I believe you want to speak with my partner, Ron Wright. Ron Wright! And I said, just a sec. <laughs> Ron, it's for you! <laughs> and he started on Ron Wright. And you hear Ron on the other end going, yep, no, no, yep, yep, no, no, okay, yep, okay, no, no, fine, understood, okay, fine. Put the phone down and said, well, we're changing the name back to Vancouver Island Promotions, because... <laughs> which was the name of the company in Victoria that we had, which was the original name of his company. He started back in the 60s. Oh, and man. when I pulled him out of retirement, we used the same name again. So we had to revert back to that name. But at the same time, we'd also hired an agent in, uh, based in the Okanagan, Penticton, called Bruce Bromley, who would later go to work for Bruce Allen and Sam Feldman, as I did. But that'll be down the road. We'll talk more about that. And uh, we had three offices open, one in Victoria, one in the Okanagan, and one in Calgary. So all of a sudden, everybody's all these other agencies on the West Coast. Everybody's going, "Who are these guys? What are they doing? And who, what right do they have to be in the music business? They're not even <laughs> musicians. They don't know nothing." So we were sort of up against the wall right from the beginning, but we just kept going at it and kept going at it, and and uh, did pretty well. The guy in in um, in, um, in the Okanagan, Bruce Bromley, chose to to fold his up a little early and go back and go to work for one of the the bigger agencies. So we just had the two, and then. I was sort of homesick and stuff, and and uh, I decided, okay, well, let's uh, let's let's you know we can do everything remotely from Victoria anyway, so we'll shut down the office here and I went back to Victoria, and we carried on, and then later on, Rod and I just sort of uh, went our own separate ways. I was sort of uh, he was more of a business guy, and I was sort of more of a uh, um, sympathetic to the bands and the artists as opposed to treating them as a commodity. And Ron was a business guy, so you know he had a different sort of outlook on it, but. Uh, from there, I, I carried on and, and I got called into the club business, which we spoke about earlier. And after uh, doing some promotions in the club, the surf side, I got uh, um, called by the owners of the Olympic Hotel, which is now the Carlton Plaza. And uh, they had had a, a parting of ways with Ron Wright, who was managing the club there, called Oli's. And they asked, because they knew I was connected with them in music and stuff, they asked if I would be interested in coming up there and working for them. So I said, yeah, and I would. Um, um, this was after I had actually spent some time at the Surfside and it had burnt down, became the sunset, and I was hired there as a manager. Now I'll go, I'll go back to that, I'm sorry going back and forth. That's all good. But when I was working at the Sunset, which was formerly the Surfside, they, um, he, this fella had hired me and he was the uh, president of the local motorcycle enthusiasts. Oh. Without saying head of the biker gang. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he needed a straight guy to kind of keep an eye on the place, keep the party under control. And of course, I'm a big fella, so, and, uh, and be able to sort of re reconcile the books and stuff because he was recognizing a lot of theft. And it was quite funny. So we, I worked with him for a while and then we had an agreement which he broke. And then I parted ways and I was at home and I got called from the Olympic Hotel. And because Ron had left there. And I said, would you like to um, come up and, and manage our club? And I said, sure. And at that time, it was uh, where uh, the paparazzi is right now, uh, oh, yeah. the paparazzi club. And that was the pub. And uh, there was a staircase from the uh, top of the uh, main floor uh, through the lounge that would take you downstairs into the basement and into the pub. And underneath the stairs is where they had a disco set up with a uh, stainless steel dance floor 
So the bands had to set up on the stainless steel dance floor. And they would play and, you know, have admissions. Everybody come in and pay. And it was just sort of like a regular nightclub except for this weird uh, dance floor. And I remember uh, he came into one, one, uh, one day and said, Glenn, this is an Italian guy. He says, Glenn, I'm going to change the floor mat. I said, the what? Said, the floor mat. I said, well, what's wrong? They look like, no, no, the floor mat, the pads, the flat. Oh, oh, the floor mat. Go, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> so we got that squared away. And uh, and I said, well, what are you going to start with? He goes, well, we're going to we're going to change the inside of the club. He says, I'm going to take that, uh, that stainless steel dance floor out of here. And I said, great, because that was just making a hell of a racket when the bands were playing. It was getting all sorts of sound bouncing back and stuff. So he said, okay. So we, uh, uh, he uh, decides to, we uh, says we're going to be able to renovate the club and we're not going to have to close it. And I said, okay, how's that going to work? He goes, oh, you'll see. So whenever he was working on an area of downstairs, renovating, because there was another part next to it, there was a storage area. He was incorporating that into the already existing pub downstairs and would have a cabaret on one side of the staircase and on the other side would be the pub. So as he's opening this place up and, you know, jackhammering and everything else and, you know, doing drywall and redoing the floors, I remember one night where he says, uh, look, he says, uh, we're running a bit behind, so I got to run a crew late tonight. And I says, okay. And we had uh, the band set up and plastic all up on the walls so for, to protect the band because there was all sorts of concrete dust and stuff going on there. So all of a sudden I'm down there, the band's starting up and everything else, and they start playing in the first set. And then all of a sudden you can hear the jackhammers going on behind behind the screen or the the plastic while, while the band's playing right and he's thinking oh i can really hear this right so the the first set ends and the band comes up to me and goes we got a problem i go what he says our drummers you're messing them up you can't keep beat with the jackhammers going on oh, behind them no. <laughs> with uh, with all the noise so we end up coming to a compromise and the band would play and then when they went on a break the jackhammers would start back up again and then the jackhammers would stop and the band would go on for their next set now that was fine too but there was one more problem all this concrete dust and i'm serving drinks with a film of concrete dust on the top ah. so we <laughs> So after a night of that, we, re we realized no more working at night. So you're not going to do that because it's just turning into a, you know, a massive show. You kind of fell into this. It's not Literally. like you planned this as a career. I was a fanboy. And then I, yeah. got, I got thrown into it and learned as I went. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating because I think, you know, most parents are like, plan your future. And most people would be like, you have to have a plan. You have to have all this stuff. But you carved out a career in a place that you were just at? I had a, I was actually, by 1977, I was actually working full-time for the provincial government and the Public Service Commission. And I was doing this <laughs> on the weekend at nights. And what and you exactly what you said, my parents were going, you know, you gotta get a real job, but I had the real job. And um, their part in all this was, as I was doing these dances, and of course, again, keeping control on it, making sure nothing would go wrong, I involved my parents. And as I'm doing the show, every hour, I would go behind the bar with a brown paper bag, fill it with all the big bills and just leave enough change in it. Then I'd walk out sort outside the front door on a quarter street, sitting in a car with the motor running with my parents, toss the bag in, <laughs> ask me how I'm doing, off they drove. And we did that uh, four times a night. So if I did get rolled, it wouldn't have all the money. And then by the time I cleaned up and got home at one or two in the morning, I go into my parents' place and there on the kitchen table is there's a reconciliation sheet, all the bills stacked up in the same order and everything else ready for me to deposit the next day. My dad does the same thing when I do shows. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but because they just, we just weren't, because of the, 
nefarity, I guess, of the whole situation and anything could go wrong at any given time or somebody could decide they wanted to jack me. So that was my sort of my protection and they, they were involved. But then when I quit the government to go full time and then ended up going to Calgary, they weren't really impressed with that because <laughs> there goes my pension, there goes all that yeah, other yeah. stuff that they appreciated. So it sounds like do you you must drive around Victoria and look at it very differently. Yes. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, cause well, I, I'm not that old and I miss like A and B sound. Yeah. Right. And I, but you, there's like all of these things you're yep. saying are now something else. Yes. Yes. And I know what they are. And a yeah. lot of the reasons I know because of what these old places were is let's, let's go back to my family when they first got here. We'll step mm -hmm. back a bit. So when they got here, they were taking on menial, um, um, you know, laboring jobs just to be able to stay alive because they just got here from England and they were teaching violin lessons and singing lessons and, and involved with their church, which is at that time was the Emmanuel Baptist Church. Um, but it was um, uh, located right down, or not the Emmanuel Baptist Church, sorry. It was the Metropolitan Church mm. at the corner of Pandora and Quadra Street, which would later now be is the Alex Golden Hall. Yeah. So they were, they were um, based out of there and they've done some laboring jobs and what have you but things just weren't going really well for them so one of the three original brothers got a job uh, as an apprentice carpenter the other one ended up working for the city uh, involved with the roadways and, and you know, curbs and stuff they were just starting to put it at that time and in about 1907 uh, early 1907 they had thought maybe we should put a, a, a construction company together and start doing our own stuff well, in July of 1907, uh, half of Victoria burns down, and all of a sudden there's a call for you know laborers or you know anybody that could build any bricklayers, anything else like that. So the third brother, who originally came, had already gone back to England, got his degree in engineering. So they contacted him and their two younger brothers, one of which was my grandfather, and said, "We found it. This is it. You got to come back. You got to you got to get here. It's 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 on fire." But literally. Of course, the amount of business and stuff, and we can make a ton of money. So, <coughs> the what the elder, engineering brother uh, that was already in England, he was back. My my other great uncle was just finished up in the Boer War, so they got him out of Africa somewhere and got him on a boat up to Victoria. And then my uh, grandfather was in Australia working, and then they got him on a boat and got him into Victoria. And then the four of them started what was to be Parfit Brothers Construction, and they built. Christchurch Cathedral, Bay Street Armories, George J. Elementary, Oakland's Elementary, three of the buildings on the Royal Jubilee Hospital campus, and I can go on and on and on. So all these old brick buildings, stone buildings, and, and what have you, a lot of it is from my family. Not only were they stonemasons and bricklayers had a construction company, they got so busy, them and another company called the Looney Brothers got together and bought the brickyards because they were going through so much material they had to control it all. And of course, it was the Baker Brickyards, which is now Mayfair Mall. Oh my God! So this is this is where this whole came through. And through all this, they're still playing their violins and cellos and, and putting on concerts and stuff. And I thought to myself, you know, I played violin and it's pretty tough. And I, you know, these hands have not really had a, a hard day's work and labor for <laughs> for most of my life. And I thought, these poor guys, their hands are all beaten up and they're playing violins and cellos and stuff and everything else. So I just had an immediate, you know, respect for, for what they had done and everything else. But this is why I know a lot of the buildings in the background in the city. Because at one point in the city, not only did you, if you had a, a, a credible orchestra or choir in the city, you had to have one of our family members into it because otherwise it had no credibility. This is what I was told by my family. <laughs> and then um, 
of course all the buildings and with the brickyards as well my family for all of the downtown core probably had their footprint on every block in one way or another in the, wow. in the, in the city during the uh, from 1908 to 1931 yeah. so and they built all these buildings and, and a lot of them still stand a lot of them are gone but um, the uh, the in 1931 the oldest uh, not the oldest brother excuse me the uh, one brother third oldest brother uh, passed away and he was really close with my grandfather and my grand and it was the depression had rolled in business was starting to get skinny so my grandfather left went to England and then came back but the other three brothers stayed and sort of mucked around and at one point they even took uh, they were so desperate for work they took a contract filling potholes from uh, souk to uh, Port Redfrew. Oh, just, man. just uh, they, they were called uh, highway maintenance, but in fact, they're just filling potholes is what they were being paid to do. So that was sort of why I know about a lot of the city and a lot of the backgrounds because my whole family was involved in one way or another, yeah. building a good chunk of it. I'd love to know what. Um, sorry, I'm asking so many questions. I have so do many it. questions. Shoot. The. I'd love to know. You've been in the scene a long time. Yeah. I'd love to know what. Uh, two things. One, what you what's the biggest change in the city you've seen? Okay. And what's the biggest change you saw in your music career of doing what you were doing, like in the promoting and the managing and the yeah. booking and? Um, well, the music part, um, we'll go with that. And um, that when I ended up partying with my my friend uh, Ron and uh, was on my own for a while and running nightclubs. I was running the Olympic Hotel, as I mentioned. And I you know, really wanted to go to Vancouver because I was told that if you want to have a career and be in the big time, we don't, we don't bring you from Victoria to here. You've got to be living in Vancouver so we know you've made the commitment and we would consider hiring you. Because mm. Sam Feldman and Bruce Allen, who were in partnership at that time, Sam Feldman had the agency, Bruce had most, did most of the management. Um, and they said, we would consider hiring you if you moved to, to Vancouver. Mm. So I said, okay. So I ended up going, getting called by the newest owner of the Surfside Sunset, which had bought the halfway house and had bought that club. And while I was up at Oli's, he was running all sorts of show bands and couldn't figure out why he was making money. And I'd be lined up at the door at my place. So through Evolution <clears throat> and my owners, uh, businessmen, wanted to make even more money and they were looking all over the place to try to figure out how to make more money. Well, they thought, and this is at the end of it, they've already had a disco before. So at the end of it, they thought, well, we'll go back to Can Music Disco and we don't have to pay the bands anymore. We'll still be just as busy and nobody's going to really notice the difference, right? And I looked at this and went, I don't know about this. So they hired a, a disco uh, guy as my co-manager and he knew disco you know, inside and out. For me, it was just like, whatever, you know, flare pants and... Uh, cheesy 412 uh, laser suits but um, I, I said okay fine and then uh, I got the phone call from the guy whose ass I was kicking uh, down the street back at the new place which is called the waterfront so it went from club 1206 to club a go go to the surf side to the uh, sunset and then to the wharf side and I got brought back when he changed it over to the wharf side he um, and, and brought me in to do that and of course I got the place up and running and packed and I had you know connections and access to all the big bands out of Vancouver anybody that was touring the whole deal that I already built up at Oli's just brought it all down there to there and the place was jumping I said I'm only going to be here for a year and then I'm leaving he goes yeah yeah sure sure whatever so got the place up and running got it all set up 
One of my best friends in the world is a, is a uh, girl named uh, Sarah Strachan. Her, at that time her name was Sarah Sinclair and she had all, her and I were going to go to Vancouver together and she had already made the first step. She took a transfer with a compensation board, was working there in Vancouver and then called me and said, okay, we got a place, we're ready to go. And then I announced to the owners of the club that uh, I was going to Vancouver. They said, what are you going to do? And I get a phone call from the manager of the group Stonebolt, who was also managing a club in Vancouver called the Rootin Tootin Newton Inn, which coincidentally happened to be a favorite spot of the local national motorcycle enthusiasts. <laughs> and uh, I'm running the cabaret part. Most of those uh, uh, motorcycle guys had their bikes lined up and they were in the pub with the strippers. And I was in the cabaret doing the bands and stuff, but it was. Uh, a real eye-awakening experience because everything that I'd hoped was never going to happen if Victoria had a can on, I had no control over in Vancouver and I was watching guys getting thrown over tables and you know back of, back of the pickup trucks up to the front door and loading the bodies into the back and taking them to the hospital for all the guys that were not behaving and my staff which I inherited were all a bunch of juice monkeys or as I like to call them the lost neck monsters and, and they're all you know, big bulky beefy guys and they're just oh, you know <laughs> I kind of bodily dealing with everybody instead of my thing was always you try to talk people through this and you, you, you gently pat them on the back and walk them towards the door as you're talking very softly to them and get them to the door and if by them they still got a problem well then you have to, to be there but that was sort of the last the last uh, straw my favorite trick in one of those situations was I'd walk him out to the fire door and if the guy just wanted to start taking a swing at me or whatever, I'd go, fine, it's over. i grab the guy and I'd fire him at the, at the fire door. But I always went, oh, sorry, that's the one that's locked after I rattled his head off of it and then kicked the other door open and threw him out in the, out in the parking lot. Next! <laughs> so that was, a, that was a lot of that and I didn't want to have any of that and of course that's all it was when I got to Newton. So by my third month there, I got a phone call from Feldman's office going, we've had a change. Uh, we'd like to invite you to come and work for us. And I thought they were kidding. I said, are you kidding? He said, yeah. I said, uh, yeah, sure, whatever. And then I hung up the phone and they got a phone call back from one of the guys I knew that worked there and said, man, he just offered you a job. It's really happening. I went, it is? Okay. <laughs> Boom, I've hit the big time. I'm working for, you know, the largest agency in, in the, the country, um, booking bands. And they started me off doing club acts and I was running <coughs> um, club acts up and down Vancouver Island, <coughs> except in Victoria. They didn't want me in Victoria because they felt that I would show favoritism because I was from here and what have you. So um, Duncan, Nanaimo, Port Alberni, uh, Comox, Campbell River, and then over in the mainland, all the all the, the other guys who've been there a while were all booking the big downtown clubs. So I got to book Surrey, Langley, uh, um, Abbotsford, um, Chilliwack, which you can still drive home from night. So that's what I was sort of doing when I first started there, and they just kept going and going and going. Um, and it got bigger and bigger, but as, as my life changed, and I got married and started having children, and then all of a sudden I found myself in a situation where I was working for business people. I was very sympathetic to the artists, and again, business people had their own sort of way of doing this. And I got to the point where I wake up in the morning, go to work, I looked in the mirror, I don't like myself anymore. I had to be one of those guys, the ones that had the reputation of what agents and promoters are really like. Yeah. They wanted me to be one of those, and I just said, I can't do this. So I said, I'm done, I'm out. They looked at me and said, you'll never work in a business again. I guess if I have to do this for a living, I don't want to be in the business anymore. 
and I walked away. Wow. And then about uh, <clears throat> three years uh, after that, no, two years after that, I, uh, I'm, I'm planning on moving back to Victoria. My father had passed away, and I wanted to be, you know, be around and be, help support my mother. One brother was out of town. My other brother was in town, but he was carrying most of the load. So I said, it's about time for me to come back. So even before I get back to Vancouver, a buddy of mine who, is, uh, who worked for the Sheriff's Department, which is another great story I'll tell you, uh, later on um, he said uh, you should go work at the queue and I said do what he goes oh you could be a salesman right because you know everybody and I went uh, okay so I went over um, and I phoned the queue and they said okay we're interested we've heard about you and walked in and, and uh, had an interview with the sales manager and he wanted to be me to be a, tr a true suit and you know sell it at all costs friend or foe get the dough you know that kind of guy right and just yeah. clean out all every money they had and move on to the next guy which again not my style but I had a family, I had support, and I got to, you know, make a living. So it's like, well, there ain't no heavy lifting here, so I guess I could probably BS my way through this. And he said, well, I'll let you know if we get the job. And uh, then he phoned me back and said, uh, no, we decided we're not going to hire you. I said, okay, I'll make you a deal. Do not give me a client list, okay, and I'll work for straight commission, and I'll give you a list of the business people that I know in town. So... I sent over the list and within, I think I faxed it over, within about an hour or two, I got the phone call going, you're hired. Because of course, all these guys, business people, my family had worked with in business for years and everything else, plus all the contacts I'd made doing business in town for years. He just went, you know a lot of people. I go, yeah. And I guess he phoned some of them and they all gave me a roar, you know, a glowing report that they could work with me. So I got me in there and then that was about the same time the Rocktoria series started. So there I am landing right in the middle even though I didn't really want to be in the music business again, I'm landing in the middle of this, and there's music. <laughs> so here I am again. But I didn't have much to do with the Rocktoria stuff, but it was kind of neat being around the musicians again and watching the process of all the young ones coming in and uh, trying to get trying to get uh, a record or get on a record and then rehearsing and, and showcasing and then getting picked as one of the contestants going into the studio and then album release party when they put in Rocktoria 1, which was a... Uh, a, uh, an actual album, and then from Rocktoria 2 to uh, Rocktoria 2002, it was about uh, 10 years, um, they were all on CD at that point. So how many years were you involved total in the music scene and what's happening like on the event booking and the club stuff and everything like that? Did you, did you move back into that after your time at The Zone? Or? Uh, I, didn't, or sorry, the I didn't really per se um, go back um, to music after um, you know, I, I sort of wrapped up with The Q and I was, I was doing, um, at that time when I was working at The Q, I still had side jobs. Of course, I was one of those guys who always had two or three things going. Yeah. And at that point, I was um, involved with the Victoria Shamrocks. Yeah. And I was involved with uh, Western Speedway and other stuff, doing promotions for them. But when I left the queue, it was because uh, this new newfangled invention had uh, come out called the Internet. <laughs> and I got a call from a guy who just invested a whole bunch of money and said, I need a sales and marketing manager. Are you interested? And I said, absolutely. And he gave me a big cash um, incentive or signing bonus by signing up with him. Of course, I blew it in one night down at a bar with all my friends from the radio station. I got a limo, threw them all in the limo, went up to a bar and spent the whole thing in one night. They all come rolling out of the, what's now the Capitol Ballroom. And then I got underway doing, <coughs> excuse me, doing that. I, I'm out of there. I'm going into the Internet uh, company. Yeah. And uh, I invested in uh, some money in that and was doing the... Um, 
uh, the sales and marketing. We had uh, struck a deal with at that time Westel, and a lot of people were getting there was dial-up at that time, and a lot of people were getting their dial-up through BCTel or you know one of the the uh, made you know Rogers or whatever one of the the regular phone carriers, but nobody was using this huge backbone that Westel had that was actually built for the. Um, uh, British Columbia Railway, the communication system all through the province. And it was like, you know, a high speed, huge trunk, lots of bandwidth, and we got to sign a deal to get a chunk of that, and then started rolling. So me as the promoter goes, okay, well, let's let's start doing stuff uh, to, to uh, start promoting what we're doing. So I went to the um, Western Speedway, who I'd been doing some work for here and there off and on, and said, hey, why don't, why don't I build you guys a website, no charge? And they'd heard about websites too, and they said, oh, well, we don't really know what you're doing, but yeah, okay. As it turns out, they were the fourth racetrack in North America to have a website. <laughs> Nobody, hardly anybody had done it at that point. So uh, we got it all up and running, and we had everything on there, and, and uh, they thought this was just great, and I was using that <coughs> to uh, promote the uh, internet company, which was called VicNet. Yeah. So VicNet was all over that. Then with my relationship with the Shamrocks, I went and did the same thing. And I said, hey, you want a free website? And they said, oh, we heard about this website thing, sure. So I gave them one of that, put my thing all over it. And they were the first senior men's lacrosse team in the country to have a website. So, <laughs> so I was breaking ground once again all over the place and uh, carried on with that. I went with that for a few years, uh, found it sort of wasn't my fancy per se. And then uh, I just uh, got away from that and started doing just um, regular promotions and stuff for people. Uh, companies that I'd worked for, for the Q selling advertising, had brought me back in to do their marketing and, and uh, promotions and that kind of stuff for them. So I did that for a lot of years. Um, the actual music part of it, I think I finished up working with music. I think I did about, I'm gonna say probably by about 2000 and, I think I told it up one day, it was 40 years I actually worked in the in the industry. Wow. So then again, so I'm doing all this, I'm working on the side, I'm hustling and doing everything else. And then I thought, well, I need to do a website for myself, but I've broken up with this fella. So one of the fellas I was doing promotions for was a fellow named Dan Dunbar, who had just um, been involved with uh, an internet provider, one of his, um, his co-investors. Uh, uh, had an internet company back east and they were trying to uh, release this new uh, new type of internet where it was self-authoring software so you didn't have to run code you just put in whatever and it was right at the beginning of that so I said well this is great and he says well we need an example of what, what we can do and I said give me the access to it and I'll, I'll build a website out of music history how's that and I'll put a bunch of bands and I'll put in all this stuff and the guy went oh this is great okay we'll give it a try so they used uh, the website that I created to show different people what they could do in the capacity of this thing and they ended up doing doing quite well by it. Um, Can you tell us more about that project? Um, That's a big pro Are you still working on that project now? No, 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 no. What what happened was is, is I, I kept the, I, I, I separated the, the relationship I had with the guys back east because they all of a sudden went, well, they, you got a lot of content in here. This is 
this is a lot of work and it's costing us money to maintain this so we need you to find some money and i said hey you just pay me to promote not sell it so and because they're back east and they're selling to banks and and a lot of high-end stuff and right so we parted but i was still with the promoter so he said well i'll just i'll just set up my own internet sort of provider here so i went with him with uh with the website and um and he was sort of the the contact at that point and then he decided oh i don't know this isn't really working for me and you know and kind of cut cut ties with me and i went that's fine and uh, then from there i found somebody else who owned a uh, computer store that had a, a server in the back and he ran the website for a few years and then it just took over his thing he just this is way too much stuff in here i can't manage this he goes i gotta i gotta let you go so this is about 2005 brings us up to and five years earlier to that a young fella who had uh, graduated from spectrum and was taking computer science at uvic him and another of his buddies had started up a, a thing called live victoria and they had, you know, from 2000 on, they were taking care of all the bands and the history of that, the bands and, you know, uh, promoting them and stuff and having the website sort of giving uh, bands a place to get on the net by just signing up, putting in all your information, and then they would post it on their website. So he, he, we sort of got hooked up. I can't remember how. And then he decided, well, you know, we, we should work together. So I started working with him. And then, you know, he told me, well, it's going to cost you money, but I'll give you a rate. But what you can do is you can make the money back selling advertising. Well, by that time, I was done with selling advertising. <laughs> I was like, you know, I was real good at it, but it was just not really where my heart was. Yeah. So the, the, the site continued on and got bigger and bigger and bigger. And the guy's just like, whoa, this is, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do with it, you know, how much you're, you're paying for this. I said, I'll tell you what, here's the deal. How about you take all the mo revenue money for the website and you just let me put the site on and what I'm doing is I'm helping increase your database yeah. which in that time was still pretty small but was starting to grow obviously because internet was taking off and bands knew they had to be part of it so if you were a band in the 2000s you signed up with Live Victoria put your band on there so you'd have a listing and a way to promote yourself but what he didn't have was anything from 2000 previous which I had the keys to because I've been working on it for however many years up to that point so we carried on and it got bigger and bigger and bigger and he, and he said well i got to change the look of this thing it's i can't manage it so he gave me a new another site and by that time i was in my third site i guess at that point and he ran that from 2006 to 2016 and then by 2016 once again it just grew and grew and grew and he says okay we got to do an update we got to freshen up the site so 2016 relaunched the site again in an even you know more format that was able to hold video was able to hold audio was able to hold everything right so you get to get a complete package and experience of the band and what they were about more so with this so um we carried on and carried on and then it happened again last year where we got together and he said you know this website's getting tired and it's you know it's a few years old now um you know we should we should think about maybe doing a new one so six years pretty much to the date this year january 2022 we relaunched the fifth website the version wow. of which you see right now and our database is shared with um, live victoria um, live vancouver uh, van isle music uh, sioux st marie music uh, couch and valley um, um arts and entertainment uh victoria arts arts and um oh 
gosh, I can't remember the name. Anyway, so we, this, this database has just increased. And what he's done is with all my previous 19 or 2000 previous um, website and information on it, he was able to go to other markets and other cities and go, I've got this great idea for you for your music scene. And by the way, this is what you can even do with your history and showed all my work as an example. So that helped him get more music, more business and stuff and everything else. And for me, it kept my relationship with him and that I'm not paying for it per se, other than my time and effort of, of keeping my part of it updated and increasing it. So when I started it, I was said, okay, well, I'll do bands 1950s to 1980s because yeah. I could sort of figure all that out and knew what I was doing. So as it went on and on and on, and people started getting on to me, well, well, I've been playing since the 70s and I'm still playing. How come you? Blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, fine. So I went to see Neville. I go, let's, let's, re let's change this deal a bit. How about I go to 2000, right? Yeah. And, and you got everything from 2000 on and I'll just fill in the uh, 20 years. I'll just pick away at it and get that build up. Um, Rock Tory was in that part of that and everything else. So. We, we agreed to do that, so it went from 50 to 1999, and then it grew again, and to the point where all of a sudden bands previous to 1950s are starting to show up, and, and, and children, relatives and stuff of bands that played in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, plus my own band's history, which we had organized bands and choirs since the 1800s. Yeah. So now the website goes from the 1800s to 1999. Wow. And so I've got... 1150 bands I've got 180 um, venues on there I get between 15 and 20,000 unique visitors a day to the website and it holds over 80,000 images good lord and that's what my hobby is now because I no longer work I'm retired yeah. and what I do is rather than sit in front of the TV all day and drool in a cup I thought well we'll just keep on going and you know, my wife says, you've spent any money? Because no, I'm not spending money. Okay, carry on. <laughs> and, you know, because actually, I, I, I'm fortunate, I, I can't really work a regular job right now, so I can do that when I can and when yeah. I can't. So that's how my website came to be. Yeah. And with the notoriety of my website and everything else, then Facebook was launched. And I thought, well, here's another great way that to, to find a way to mix this into what, what I'm, my capabilities and, and sort of strengths were. So I got my Facebook page set up, and what I do on my Facebook, my personal Facebook page, is my family history. So when you go to my Facebook page and you see the big main picture in the, there, there's about 700 ones behind it that show all the old buildings, the orchestras, and everything else, and all my family's history that they did from 1889 up until... That's cool. Yeah, up until uh, today. That's cool. Did you so, yeah, and then I set a second uh, Facebook page for the Royal Miss City Music Project. And what my Facebook page for the Royal City Music Project does is it promotes gigs coming up nice. and current artists. So some of the old guys who've got new bands, oh, I got a new band, we're playing here, here's a poster. I will post it on there and have a, a Facebook uh, you know, following that follows along to see what's coming up that's in their genre. Because I, I really spread it out between uh, opera and uh, classical music to punk to you know, um, grunge to you know everything that's coming up I will I've promoted on it because I promote music and I'm a music lover that's and awesome. you don't pay me anymore you cannot pay me to promote because it's too much stress and I won't do it <laughs> but I will do whatever I can to assist you and help you out and I've supported music basically since 1977 in one form or another that's amazing. Yeah. So there you go. 
I'm sure I mean, you got a lot of guys with that story. No, <laughs> no, not at all. Yeah, lots of fun, lots of fun in doing it along the way, and I really enjoy uh, uh, working with musicians. Uh, I still, lucky again, still have a lot of respect because when I first started doing the site, there was a lot of really well-known musicians who had, you know, made it. I can th think of one fellow from here, Victoria. His name is Grant Gislason, and he owns a company called uh, Vintage Hot Tubs. Well, he was playing in the 70s in this band called Holy Smoke that was the, the, the big band of the city. But later on, went to play in a band, Sweeney Todd. He was uh, one of the guitar players after uh, Nick Gilder had left, and he was in Sweeney Todd when Brian Adams was in there. So he had that connection and worked with a lot of big name people over the years. So what I told him when I was doing this about it, I, I saw him on the street one day. I said, oh, oh, I got this great idea. Let me tell you what I'm doing. And of course, being an agent, being a promoter, and what have you, as I talked more, he walked faster trying to get away from me. <laughs> and, then, and then now, because, because everybody thought, okay, what's in it? You can't just come in here and say you're going to do this and not look for something. So they're waiting for me to go, oh, by the way, I want money or I'm going to charge you or, or this or that. Never. Yeah. Never. Also, through doing the website and everything else, why just do that when you can expand? So I thought, well, you know, I'm a big fan of the history and stuff and everything else. Anybody done a documentary on this? So about 10 or 12 documentaries later, short films. I had captured the club scene <laughs> in Victoria. I captured the music scene in Victoria. Wow. <laughs> and individual ones. I did uh, the guitar player who's from Victoria that ended up playing with, um, oh gosh, come on. Come on, Glenn. I'm having another brain fart. Uh, the Trogs. Wow. It's a wild thing. Uh, Richard uh, Moore was his name. He grew up in Langford. And um, as did Bob Rock. He also grew up and went to Belmont High. So I get a, a documentary and he uh, was involved with that, the one there and uh, all sorts of other guys stepped up and came involved um, and said, how can we support you and stuff. And I didn't charge the guys anything for this and I paid for it all out of my own pocket. Wow. And uh, I had a, a photographer who worked for me and he also was a video guy, a video editor. So he was able to edit all the in interviews and we always did this whole series um, from the musicians' mouths. So Victoria's first band, The Pharaohs, David Foster's uh, first wife, B.J. Cook, um, and all these other ones. We did all these mini documentaries. And then, later on in life, about 2019, after I'd already had a heart attack, I'd already had my second pacemaker put in, and then I realized that, uh, um, you know, something's gonna happen here, and, and uh, I, I, I gotta have a succession plan, because, my, my, my life expectancy is starting to, to shrink. So I thought, well, my, my wife and my kids love me dearly and I love them, but they have no interest in what I do. Yeah. So I got my old friend, Ron Wright, comes back into the picture. His father had passed away and he had, um, was in charge of, of some of the uh, portions of the estate, one of which was the relationship between you, Vic, and the, and the Bob Wright uh, uh, Ocean Sciences Center. Mm. And he was donating 11 million or 11 million dollars total a million dollars a year for 11 years and the uh, guys who were taking care of the uh, estate were kind of fumbling with the money and they missed a few payments so when they got this all shored up and everything else and decided okay we're going to pay off the oak bay marina as bob wright had agreed and then you know we'll be wrapped up with that agreement ron went up to the university asked for a meeting with the dean at that time and said okay i want to come up here to tell you two things one 
that you're going to get all the money that's owed to you and the co and the contract is good to the end of it so all the money promised will be given to you oh and by the way i'm a i grew up in victoria and my whole history is sitting in one guy's hands as is all the history of music in victoria and you really need to find a place for this and you go well, what do you mean he goes oh he's got all these posters pictures records documentaries everything and he, he doesn't know what he's going to do with them because you know he's got heart problems and and what have you so he goes the dean goes I'll get back to you. Next thing I know, I get a phone call from the archive department at the Victoria at UVic, and they go, "We'd like to have a meeting with you and see if you'd like to donate your collection to UVic." So we had a meeting, and I got the first batch up there, and I had a second batch that originally was earmarked to go to uh, the BC archives, but that's when I had the triple bypass. It was actually three months after I'd taken the load to UVic that I had the triple bypass put in and that put everything on hold for quite a while and by the time i got back to the bc archives everything had changed the interest had gone and what have you so i still got a little bit of it left but i'm going through it i've got a collection of signed guitars by uh, brian newcomb who played with uh, foster and ray charles and a bunch of people the uh, signed guitar from uh, dick moore and the trogs uh, signed guitar from peter frampton signed guitar from uh, the band Foreigner, and all this other memorabilia that people just giving me. Uh, wow. Signed uh, stuff for the band Uriah Heep, because the singer, the now singer is from Victoria, he actually went to Oak Bay High School, Bernie Shaw. So they were all supporting this anyway they could because they'd heard about it. And I've still got a, a few of these pieces left, I'm trying to find homes for it. Wow. But uh, yeah, so that's wow. where that's where all my collections and stuff, so all the videos and stuff, everything's all out of my possession. It's all gone to you, Vic, and nice. they've got it in their archives, you can go up and look it up. One of the proudest pieces I had in the, the, um, in the collection was a newspaper that ran for uh, 1966 and 67 called Offbeat Magazine. And this was a music newspaper that came out and this predated Georgia Strait, Rolling Stone, everybody else. And this guy was producing this newspaper out of his parents' basement on Allenby Street. His name was Gary Wilcox. And this thing got so popular that it was being distributed out to Toronto and Ontario. And I got pictures of guys like Roy Orbison and other ones reading their copy of, of the, uh, this Offbeat magazine, which would now later become Offbeat's a totally different music magazine and no thing related to this. But again, uh, because this was cutting edge and was the original way before everybody else, I ended up uh, uh, getting donated to me an entire collection of every volume of it. That went up to you, Vic. And then with well, this other fellow who was involved with uh, um, um, locally, he was involved in, in music and stuff, but he was sort of a, a rounder, a real estate guy, but he got involved with uh, producing a local mag later on in the uh, 90s, I think in the 2000s, called uh, um, Cut 2 Magazine. And then he had all these years of all these copies and everything else. He gave them to me as well, so I had all of these, and then I took them up to UVic, and UVic had never seen Offbeat. They had one issue of Offbeat magazine, so they had a full collection. They had one or two copies of Cut 2 magazine. They now have a full collection. Um, I had articles on me on a, uh, another magazine called West Coast Magazine. They didn't even have in their database. Um, all, copies of uh, the Cosmic Debris, which they never heard of and didn't have in their database. I gave them copies of the first 10 copies, and I'm waiting for the person who has the rest of them and all the other volumes to get a hold of me to take those up to UVic as well. To this day, when media, uh, TV, radio, newspaper, online, when they wanted what history or music history, 
I'm more or less the go-to guy. I mean, I've been woken up somewhere in time in the morning at 6 o'clock in the morning by Al Faraby going, Hey, so-and-so died last night. Got any stories? <laughs> oh, man. I haven't woken up and brushing my teeth yet. So <laughs> if I could get my ass out of bed and straighten myself out, I could do it. Um, it's harder for me now to sort of get going. Um, with the stroke, it took me uh, almost a year to be able to get functioning to the point where after it happened, I could not speak and end sentences. I could not write my own name. I could not form an entire sentence. I was just struggling. And the website saved me because I went into the website and put my brain into that and go, if this is something I know well, if I can get this going back, it'll help me write again. It'll help me finish sentences. It'll get my you know, pronunciations back. It'll get my voice back and everything else. So it actually, as, as well as helping all these other you know, musicians along the way, it brought my life back from looking like almost a vegetable to back to where I am today where I can still tell stories and see everything else, or not see everything, talk, tell stories and, and have people see what happened. The sight part, I've, I lost the sight in my right eye, so I still haven't got that back. And I move a lot slower, but I can still talk. I got most of my brain back and I'm still supporting music wherever I can. I was on the uh, board of directors of the uh, uh, Blue Society before I um, had, the, had the stroke in 85. And then um, before that, um, I was also worked for the Victoria Jazz Society as their promotion and marketing guy for uh, 2004 to 2008 or so, eight or nine, something like that. And, yeah, so I was always still involved in music there. So your history really is all about promotion. You yeah. find something you like yeah. and you just promote it. Yeah, or something that's familiar enough to me. Yeah. Like if it's if it's local history, okay. If it's music history, West Coast now music history, because the the site I didn't go through the final expansion, which was I finally ended up taking my focus of musicians from Victoria and on the island and expanded it to West Coast because a lot of the guys in Victoria, to make it, you had to go to Vancouver. So to follow their story, I had to go along with it. So that's when it really went into warp drive and all these bands. And of course, I worked in music in the 80s. So all these 80s bands. And when I left Feldman, one of the things I forgot to return was all the promo kits that I had in my car that I was handing out to everybody when I was trying to sell the bands. So I had all the eight, a lot of these eight by tens and stuff, enough to get it started. And of course, as you start it, people come and contribute to it as well. What's yeah. your favorite part about being a promoter? <sighs> a full house. Yeah. My my birthday parties are amazing because <laughs> my fiftieth birthday party, I had four hundred people at the Langford Legion. And no, 500 people at the Langford Legion, it only held 400. And the only reason I didn't get busted by the cost is because at any given time, 50 to 100 people were outside smoking either cigarettes or dope. <laughs> so that, that, when they came in, I was still under the limit. And then for my 60th birthday, I was at the Red Lion in uh, the pub there. Same thing, they held, uh, it held 300 people. I sold tickets for 400 and the cops could walk through and but everybody was all dressed up because we're older now we all had nice clothes on there wasn't a bunch of rowdies and they just walked through and lots of people outside they didn't even bother doing a head count just walked away what is it about a full house that you love because it shows that i can get people together 
to have fun and enjoy themselves in as kind of a, a safe, non-confrontational environment. You know, there's no fights break out or anything. I mean, even my after I had all these surgeries and stuff and everything else, and I was still kind of reeling from a lot of it. They said, "Oh, you're turning 65." I said, "Oh, okay." I said, "You're going to put on something else?" I said, "Oh, I don't know." <laughs> so, so one of my favorite places to go because it's close to home and they have live music is the Loft. Yeah. So I went up to see these guys on my 65th birthday. We were there birthday. on Tuesday. I was there. Where we were, were you? We were only there for the beginning because we had to go. I we have left. to work on Tuesday night. So see, I got we there right at about, uh, I think we got there by about 7 o'clock. We go there every Tuesday, me and my wife. Oh, well. Yeah, we were there the last two weeks. Yeah, we yeah. were too. Yeah. Yeah, with the washboard and the guy up yeah. front and Slim and, yeah, and uh, yeah. Clark, Clark uh, Brandon. And yeah, he, LPs. Yeah, uh, uh, Clark works for my wife at Pacifica Housing. Oh, oh that's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Small town, man. Yeah. We, we have to go by before she has to be downtown like by seven, seven so we have to leave right. just before seven so uh, we only get like a little, a little bit but it's so worth it still. well my, my big joke is you know that, that uh, saying about six degrees of separation yeah, yeah. in victoria for me it's a sixth of a degree 100 percent true it's just my like, uncle maybe craig morrison yes yeah yeah he's back in montreal yeah yeah and my dad is brent yep yeah yep well he's on the site yeah is yeah. he yeah, <laughs> and his, his band, uh, I think his band, yeah. The Moments or something, yeah. we spelled with a Z. Yeah, the Moments, yep. you He's it. on there. Well, of course, of course, he does his all history writing as well. He did that thing about growing up in Victoria and the, and the Red Rocket radios and stuff and everything mm -hmm. else that we grew up with. And they started talking about his music stuff. And then we hooked up. And then from there, he said all the stuff over, yeah, post all whatever you want. So, yeah, oh, he's on there awesome. too. If that's you picked awesome. up a guitar or played an instrument or even if it was in a basement band, mm -hmm. if you even had one gig, you're on the site. Nice. Yeah, and I don't care whether you got paid or not, you're playing at church hall. If you played one gig as a group, you're on the site. That's wow. the criteria. Yep. The feeling you have to want something to pack out. Yeah. It's not, it's not, I don't feel like getting to know you. It's not mm -hmm. from a selfish point of view. It's from yeah. you like to see that happening for yeah. people. Yeah. There's, right? there's like, 300, you know, in, in, the, in the case of my 60th one, which I thought was one of my best. Um, at my 60th birthday at the Red Line on the Saturdays they had a jam during the afternoon and then they had bands at night. So I got the whole day and between the jam in the afternoon and my thing at night over 100 musicians played on my 60th birthday. Wow. That's awesome. That was fun. Yeah. That was my favorite. Sorry, I'm getting, I'm getting weary here or weepy. My favorite band growing up in the 70s when I was starting out was a band called Earthbound. And they did yes to a T. And prog music, like you couldn't, they were just fantastic. They got together on my birthday and played a set to close the jam in the afternoon. Oh. Brought the house down. And then the band Holy Smoke and Uncle Wiggly and Telstar and everybody else all got back together at the nighttime for, for the night part of it. Everybody got back together. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so I brought the whole community back together in one place for the whole day. And musicians were all talking. Are you playing the gig? Are you playing the gig? I'm playing the gig. I'm playing. Well, I'm playing the gig too. What do you play on daytime? Well, I play at nighttime. And it was just this whole thing going on, right? But everybody had fun, and it was like literally getting the bands back together. 